All right. We've been in a, a new series uh, for us over the past few weeks. We're calling this series Escaping God. And it's in the book of Jonah, which is a short book in the Bible. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 7 to 16 this morning. The verses will come up on the screens here beside me. And uh, then we'll look into this together. So this is Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 7. It says this. And they said to one another, these are sailors on a ship, and there's a big storm happening at the time. Come, let us cast lots so we can see on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more uh, I did this yesterday, reading it through. T- t- it, 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 the storm got worse, okay? The storm got a lot worse. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more challenging against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O oh, Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's get caught up in this story. Maybe this is your first time with us through this series, or potentially first time with us ever as a church. Let's just get caught up on what's happening here. We're about seven or 800 years B.C., and God says to, to a prophet, this is, this is a guy that's supposed to speak on God's behalf. In fact, that had already happened. In, in Second Kings, we read a prophecy of Jonah. Like This is a man that God does speak to and through. And God says to this man, he says, I want you to go to Nineveh, which, which from where Jonah lived is kind of northeast. And Jonah is thinking, Nineveh, like the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the, 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 the wicked city of Nineveh. God, you want me to go and carry a message for you to call these people, like these people, them, to repent. They're so wicked. They're horrible. The way they take over lands, the brutal things they do, they're, they're, they're like, they're terrorists. I'm not going there. No way. So he's supposed to go northeast to go to Nineveh. He doesn't. He goes south. He goes to a port city called Joppa. He gets on a boat that is going west. He basically goes in the complete opposite direction as far as you could try to get away from Nineveh. But, as you can imagine, it's not easy to escape the God who has created the universe. His legs tend to run faster than ours do, and Jonah finds that he's in the middle of a storm. And it's not just any storm. What we looked at last week is that it's a storm of God's doing. It's a storm that God created and pointed at Jonah and at this boat that he's on with these other sailors, with this other crew. And these other sailors, they're, they're panicking. They're, this is a storm unlike any that they had ever seen. And they're trying to figure out what, if anything, they can do to get out 
of this horrible situation. Now, so far already in this series, we've seen a number of things that are applicable to life today here in Ottawa, here in our nation, and, and in, just in contemporary life. First is this, is that God has a tremendous heart for those that we would still consider to be wicked people. God, and even sending a prophet to Nineveh, is showing that there is nobody that is beyond his grace. There's nobody so wicked that God is going, well, forget you, forget you. I mean, those people have done some pretty bad things, but you've done some really bad things. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're out. No, no, no opportunity of grace for you. We've looked at that. Last week, as I said, we looked at this, this thing of like God hurling. That's the word that is used. It comes up again in the verses that we just read, hurling. Hurling a storm at, at one of his children. What do we do with that? I thought, you know, Christians in the room, that's, that's how we're supposed to think, isn't it? Like, surely all storms in our lives are caused by, by God's enemy, like by Satan. It's him. He's, you know, he's trying to get at me. That's what he's doing. But, well, no, that's not what it says in the text here. It says that God hurled a storm. God hurled the storm. What are, what are we supposed to do with that? Some other things that are going on for Jonah. There's, there's, there's issues here around uh, nationalism, racism. That's pretty topical today, isn't it? You don't have to go too far in the news these days to come across articles that are speaking of these very things. How does God respond to that type of thinking? What, what, what's, what's God's heart? So we see here that clearly living like the people in Nineveh, just going and doing whatever you want, kind of living any way that you want. Whatever you decide to be good is good. Whatever you decide to be evil is evil. And, and you're kind of the master of it. And, and forget God. He's off doing his thing. And who cares? Well, living that way clearly doesn't please God. That's not what God wants. Or God wouldn't say to one of his prophets, go to Nineveh. But on the flip side of it, what about Jonah, the prophet? Well, even he is not innocent. It's not like he's on... He's on a ship with a crew that are like really wicked people and he's there as like the really good, innocent one. No, if you've been paying attention through the story, Jonah's not innocent. God speaks to him, tells him to do something, and he says no. Not only does he say no, but he runs the other way. So it's not, it's not irreligion. It's not this thing of like, well, I'm just going to live any way that I want. But likewise, it's not like kind of like hardcore religion trying to keep all the rules, speaking on God's behalf, and then you get called one of the good guys because just give it enough time and clearly you're actually not one of the good guys. You still get it wrong. You still mess up. Well, then how, how then are we, like, where does salvation come from? How then are we saved? Like, what, what then do we have to do to be saved? And that's a really good question for us to ask today in Ottawa because here in Ottawa, in our nation's capital, we, as a city... We live out every day something of what the men, the crew on this boat are living out in these verses. And here's what I mean. We read through these verses. We read that the men are calling out to their gods. They're, they're, they're crying out. This is in the, the, the section earlier. They're like, they're, they're just any god, hoping that any god would listen to them. And we can do that in our own lives as well. Some of you in this room, this is how you're living your life right now. This is absolutely how I certainly lived a huge part of my life, but even at times can still fall into this myself, is this thing of like, I, I'm, I'm going to put my faith in a whole bunch of different things, hoping that one of them might be the right thing. Hoping that one of them might be the thing that would actually save me. 
Many of you, because we're a church that meets right here in central Ottawa, many of you are not originally from Ottawa, but you probably remember when you moved to Ottawa, the things that were going through your mind, the, the, the goals that you had, the ambitions that you had. If you work in the political sphere, you know, the change that you want to bring, the things that you want to do. If you're a university student, what you want to study, what you want to become an expert in and go off and, and gain employment in that area, all these, all these things. But within that, you probably put your faith in some of those things. You probably thought things like, if I, if I, if I get to Ottawa, if I, if, I get the, if I get the degree, if I work really, really hard, that will set me up for the placement, which will set me up for the job in the department that I want to be in, which will get me, which will get me on, on the track that I want to be on, and, and then everything's going to be set. And my saving, my salvation will come from that. That will answer everything that I want. Maybe it's not employment or education. Maybe it's a relationship. Yeah, things in life right now, you know, on the whole, they're pretty good, but, yeah, but you know... Sometimes people are saying to me, oh, why don't you have a boyfriend? Why don't you have a girlfriend? If I just had a boyfriend, if I just had a girlfriend, if I was just in a relationship, then, then sure, that's where my saving would come from. Then, 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 I'd, then I'd, like, be complete. That's, that's the missing thing. Oh, if I just had more money, just a bit more, there's this, thing, there's this thing that I want, this place that I want to go to. I want to be able to get on Instagram and go to that beach and use that filter and have all my friends be that jealous, and it'll be amazing if I can just get that. And so we go for all these different gods, essentially. Now, some 2,800 years ago, back in the culture that we're reading about here, they, they named their gods things like Hermes. That was the god of commerce, god of money, essentially. Eros, god of sex and of fertility. We just skip over that part. and We, we don't even bother with the naming. We, we just go straight to the worship of the very thing. And what's going on in the boat there is so similar to what happens so often in our city. It's what happens with many of us that are even in this room. Is I'll just try it. I'll, I'll, I'll put my faith in a whole bunch of things, hoping that one of them might actually save me. So for many of us, the answer to how do we obtain salvation, and, and in using that word, what I'm speaking about, is how am I saved? How, how am I fulfilled? How do I find meaning and, and, and purpose? We find it in something that I'll refer to this morning as a shotgun faith. I'm not, well, I'm not anything of a hunter myself, to be honest, but I know enough to know that a shotgun, when you fire a shotgun, what comes out of the shotgun, as it, as it goes, it, it kind of, the, the path of it widens as it moves towards its target. Whereas a rifle, like a single, you know, a single bullet, you fire it and, and it's, it's one thing and, and there it goes, right? So if you're, I, you know, a, a while ago I went clay pigeon shooting. I don't know why clay pigeons are named what they are because they, they look nothing like what they're, what they're actually named. It looks nothing like a pigeon whatsoever, which is very disappointing for me. But I went clay pigeon shooting, and I remember thinking that the person said to me, you don't actually have to hit it perfectly on. You just need some of the shot to hit it because as, as it goes towards it, it's kind of widening like that. Whereas if I was there and I had a single kind of bullet like a rifle, well, you'd have to have a, a perfect target or a perfect shot at least. When it comes to faith, we love shotgun faith. They did in that culture. We love it in our culture. We love this thing of, well, I don't, I don't have to be completely right. I don't have to be right on the mark, right on the money. If I'm just a little bit on it, that might be good enough. That might be enough. This isn't a new idea. Certainly not a new idea in our culture. Some of you may be familiar uh, with uh, the, the old parable It comes uh, from Eastern cultures, um, of the blind men and the elephant. Some of you will have 
come across this. And, and this has been retold many times over the years, uh, perhaps uh, most famously by a, a 19th century American poet named John Godfrey Sachs. And he's written this into a poem that I thought I would share with you this morning. I was thinking the other day, we don't have enough poetry in our preaching at Grace City Church. So I thought we would go for this. So I want to read this poem to you, and let's, let's see what you think of this. This maybe will resonate with, with you. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant... And happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. Are you enjoying this so far? It's like Dr. Zeus Sunday. Is this good? All right. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceedingly stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prat about an elephant not one of them has seen. Resonates, doesn't it? Because a lot of us think this way. It's this thinking of, well, all, all paths lead to God. Have you ever had that said to you? Have you ever thought that yourself? Do you think that this morning? All, all paths lead to the truth. There's, there's, there's truth in all of them. All religions have their strengths. All gods, if you will, have their strengths. But all gods also have their shortcomings. But here's the problem with the parable. Is that it backfires. How do you know that each one of the blind men are kind of onto something? And there's truth in what they're saying, but it's not the complete truth. How do you know that? How do I know that upon hearing this parable, upon hearing this poem? We know this because we know the whole picture. We see the entire elephant. This poem, this parable, requires us to assume that we know the entire truth. It requires us to do the very thing that it tells us we must not do. And so this type of thinking of, well, all paths lead to God. Just just worship loads of gods. Throw your faith at all sorts of things because they're all equally as valid. And it will all bring you to the truth. It can sound really humble, right? Remember that line in here? Though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. That can sound really humble. That can sound really nice. But you know what? It's actually an incredibly arrogant thing to say. All paths lead to God. They're all valid. All religions lead to God. They're all valid. It really plays into our cultural thinking. We think, yeah, that's really nice. I like that. I really like that. But it's actually a very arrogant thing to say. It's actually a very proud thing to say because the only way to say it definitively is if you know the complete truth about every religion. And you don't. And neither do I. And the reason why this type of thinking is so pervasive in our culture is because it allows us to do two things that we love to do. The first thing is this, sound clever. We love to sound clever. And the second thing is be noncommittal. 
It was like me on my first date with Natalia at a really expensive Italian restaurant in England. I want to take you for a date. Let's go. And I'm going to pay for this. Oh, that'd be really nice. Great. So off we went into the restaurant. I'm looking, I'm like, I don't eat a lot of, yeah, a lot of fancy Italian restaurants. Sorry to disappoint. That's just not me. So I'm looking at the menu and I want to look really clever. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pronounce it. I have no idea how to pronounce this stuff, what I'm about to eat. And I'm also looking over at the price associated with these things. And I was a student at the time. Even still, if I went there now, it would still be a bit like, <sighs> all right. So I'm trying to do these two things at the same time, appear really, really clever and be non-committal. So she's looking at different things, kind of going, well, this dish looks really nice, and I'm looking over and seeing 45 pounds, and I'm getting my calculator out to get it out in Canadian dollars, kind of right there, right? I'm like, that's like $80. Like, no way. And I'm thinking that in my head, so I'm like, non-committal. Well, yeah, maybe there's some other things on the menu you'd like to consider as well, right? What about this? And I try to say an Italian-sounding food and totally botch the pronunciation of it. Sounding clever. And being non-committal. We love it. We love it in our culture. And this type of thinking, all paths lead to God. There's truth in every, every religion. It lets us sound clever and be totally non-committal. And if we can do that at the same time, oh, bonus points for that. We really like that. So, let's do away with this thinking of well, all paths are equally as valid because to say that in a definitive way, in any authoritative way, requires us to know the complete picture, to know the complete truth about every single one of the paths, about every God, about every religion. Now, Christians in the room, you hear, you're thinking, well, yeah, this makes sense, this is all well and good, but I'm a follower of Jesus, so this... This doesn't apply to me. You know what? We can still try to be clever and be non-committal at the same time. You ever heard of church shopping? A few weeks ago, I, <laughs> not one of my better moments, but a few weeks ago, there's somebody who came in here and said, oh, hey, my name's Rich. He said, yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. I'm just church shopping this morning. He said, oh, well, let me know if you find any bargains. Uh, we haven't seen him again, <laughs> so I don't know really what's going to come of that. It's this very idea. Oh, it sounds good. I'm just, I'm looking around, just want to see kind of what, what's out there. You know, see the way the Spirit may lead me. Sounds really great. Very non-committal. Now, I recognize there are times moving to a city and that sort of thing that that might be valid. Don't hear me wrong. But my point is this. Even as Christians, we can go through life this way. That's what I want you to understand. We can. We shouldn't. We're, we're not made for that. We're, we're, we're made for commitment. We're made to take positions on things. We mustn't be afraid of, of, of truth. We must be wise. We must weigh it. Followers of Jesus in this room, we must weigh it all in this book. Does it hold up in here? Because this, this is our basis for the truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, I sure hope it is. If not, you're just going to be blown by the wind. It's this thing of the man who stands for nothing, falls for everything. Now, some in the room are thinking again, well, no, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not, that's, not, that's not how I'm living my life. I know that the way to be saved, I know the real way to be saved is this, is this. It's to keep all the rules. That's how you get saved. That's how you find your, your salvation, is that if you keep all the rules. But again, if we're going through the story in Jonah, we see, well, no, that clearly isn't the case either. Because surely Jonah is one of the good guys, right? Like, he's not one of the wicked people in Nineveh. He's a prophet of God. Like, like an Old Testament, like a proper prophet of God. This is Jonah. 
And still, he gets it wrong himself. So where, where does that leave us? How, how then do we find our salvation? What hope do we have? I went through so much of my life, so much of my life, thinking that if I can keep the rules, if I can do the right things, if I can look like the good Christian youth group kid, the good Christian university student, if I can do all this, if I can trick everybody, then I will also trick God, and God cannot be fooled. I was very successful at fooling a lot of people around me. I utterly failed at fooling my God. He knows. He knows me. He knows you. So our salvation does not just come by trying to keep all the rules, because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we fail at that. In fact, I would say that none of us would get to put our heads on our pillow tonight and between the hours that pass between now and then, perfectly, perfectly keeping God's law. Not one in this room. Our thoughts, things going through our mind, different things that we think about people, things that anger us, things that, that frustrate us, things that we hold on to. We're, we're, we're so prone to this each and every one of us. On the boat, the storm's going on. They wake Jonah up, don't they? They kind of, why are you sleeping? What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Cry out to your God. They're having this absolute panic because they think that they're going to lose their lives because of this storm. We hear that line, perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. This shotgun faith, let's just cry out to all the gods. Maybe one of them will hear us. And then we'll be saved. It's interesting here that there's no verse that says, so Jonah called out to his God. You notice that? There's no verse that says, so Jonah, asking what they, receiving what they said, called out to his God. He, Jonah is so, like, he's so set. He's so stubborn. He is so determined to run from God. He is so set in his disobedience. He is so set in his sin that he would rather be in the storm than to call out to God. This is what sin does to us. It blinds us to reality around us. It blinds us to the dangerous situation that we are in. It causes us to think irrational thoughts. It messes with our minds. And it snowballs. We think, well, no, I'm not going to call out to, the, uh, to God in that. So we, we resort to our other gods. We resort to other false idols. We resort to other sin. And it just compounds, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Do you know what I'm, friend, friend, listen to me. Do you know what I'm talking about this morning? Are the things that have happened in your life, are the things that are happening in your life right now, where you know, no, well, I know... What I know of God and what I know of Scripture, I know he says this, but no, I'm going to choose another way. And initially, it's like, man, okay, I know I'm making this decision, but I'm just going to go with this. I'm just going to go with this. But as time goes on, you actually end up coming to the place where your mind has completely moved beyond like the fact that you've disobeyed God, and you've, just, you've lined up a whole kind of artillery behind you of reasons why your decision was the right one of reasons why you're justified in your disobedience. It's, it's, like, it's like, it's delusional. And as a pastor, and I, friends, I don't say this pointing the finger because I can do this myself a lot. Often I sit down with people who are, are grieving storms in their lives, dangerous situations that they are in, and then when it comes to the end of that conversation of like, well, do you just... Turn, turn to God. 
Humble yourself before him. Receive his grace. Let him welcome you in. Still, they'll choose the storm over their God. Somehow, sin has this way of messing with our minds that we actually find the storm more attractive. We find the pain of the storm more attractive than the gracious, merciful embrace of our Father. Sin messes with our heads, and this is exactly what is happening to Jonah. Jonah is essentially there, and he's saying, I would rather choose the storm than call out to God right now, the very thing that the sailors were asking him to do. Friends, we all do this. Isaiah 53, 6, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's all of us. That's all of us in this room. We are all prone to doing this ourselves. And they're there on the boat, and they're determined to get to the bottom of this, the crew. So they start asking a whole bunch of questions. I say this in, in, in Jonah 1, verse 8. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? Well, You've got to hand it to these sailors. In the middle of the storm, they're asking some pretty big questions, right? I would be like barfing off the side of the ship myself. But they really want to know who this guy is. And they ask these four questions. But Jonah's answer is very interesting. The order in which they ask their questions, okay, tell us upon whose account this evil has come, what's your occupation, where do you come from, what is your country, and of what people are you? That last question, the fourth question, of what people are you, what they're asking is, what race are you? Do you notice how Jonah answers it? What does Jonah say? I am a Hebrew. He answers the fourth question first. And we see again here, this is where Jonah's identity is. It is so in his race. And that is the very reason he's on this boat in the first place. Nineveh, them, no. I'm a Hebrew. I'm one of the chosen ones. I am not going there. I'm not going to defile myself by going there. No way, not going to happen. And they're there in the middle of the storm, and these four questions are asked. Jonah asks the, the la- answers the last question first. Of what race are you? Of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord, and I am a Hebrew is very different than I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. In terms of priorities in your life, if that was asked of you in that situation, in the storm, what part of your identity rises to the surface? What part of who you are and how you see your value and how you see your worth you work in government in Ottawa. Is it your titles? Your title in the civil service? Is it the achievement that you've got? Is it the letters after your name? Is it the trophy wife or trophy husband or trophy boyfriend or trophy girlfriend? What is it when asked is the first thing that comes out of your mouth or at least the first thing that goes into your mind and comes out of your mind when you're asked about your identity? For Jonah, it's race. Now let's not miss an opportunity here. Because for us as Canadians, we would like to think that we are the polite Canadians. We're the very inclusive culture. We welcome immigrants. We welcome those from other nations coming in. We don't have an issue with racism. The states, our friends to the south, they might, but not us. And guys, like, come on. Let's not trick ourselves and think that, that we're totally above this. Like, really? We're not. And this is why the church, this is why followers of Jesus Christ should be first, should be on the forefront of this, modeling a different way, because our identity is not in race, it's not in nationalism, it's in Jesus Christ. Jonah wants a God of his own making. Jonah wants a God that sees his identity and his priorities the same way that Jonah sees them. 
Jonah wants God to take the fact that Jonah is a Hebrew and elevate that above everything else. And God's looking at Jonah going, you're my son. You're my son. That doesn't have to do with the fact that you're a Hebrew. There's provision in Old Testament law for others to be welcomed into the family of God. There certainly, of course, is today as well. Praise God. So you're part of the family of God. Race, socioeconomic class, all these other identifiers, age, gender, they do not come first. Jonah's a son of God. Are you a son of God? Are you a daughter of God? Is that what the rest of your identity is based on? If not, there will be times in your life when that will really be rocked. There are times in your life when, when, when false identities will flow out and will realize, oh, my goodness, God, I've not placed my identity in you. You're not the first thing. My race is the first thing. My bank balance is the first thing. The letters after my name are the first thing. None of these are bad things, but they're bad gods. They make really lousy gods. If you're here, if you're son or daughter of God, let that be the first thing of your identity. Now, it's here where a tremendous shift takes place in the story, right? So it's for the first time in this story so far and in this series where Jonah actually speaks the truth. They say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down? And he says this in verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And again, these sailors, they're merciful. They're like, no, we're going to try to row really hard to get out of this storm. They don't want to throw this guy overboard. What would you be like if, if I was one of the crew on the ship and he said, that it's because of me that the storm is, I'm like, here you go, <laughs> straight in you go, into the water. These sailors, they're actually really nice guys. Well, no, row, 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 and the storm's getting worse and worse and worse. Guys, this, <laughs> this question of how then are we saved? What, like, what hope is there in this, right? Where do we find peace? Where is the peace in the storm? Some of you have come to church this morning with that question top of your mind. Some of you, that's, that's the only reason you've come to church this morning. Maybe, maybe I'll find peace there. The storm that is raging in your life, and here in, and I, like you, those of you that know me, you know I love this city. We love this city. There's nowhere else in the world I would rather live than Ottawa. But in Ottawa, we are so professional, and so polished, and so, like, the storms that we go through, we go through them alone so often. Because we just, we don't want other people to know about them. Because if we let them know about the storm, we're admitting weakness. And in Ottawa, when you admit weakness, somebody steps on you, and they step above you, and you get to watch them go higher up the ladder. So we keep our storms to ourselves. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you're here this morning. I just want peace from the storm. How do I find peace from the storm? How do I find saving? Where does my salvation come from? I'm hearing this. It doesn't come from living any way that I want. It doesn't come from trying to keep all the rules because I'll... Tell me, just get to it. Where is salvation found? How then can I be saved?
Jonah 1.15. Listen. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. For these men on the boat in the midst of the storm, where did their saving, their salvation, if you will, where did it come from? It came from the sacrifice of one man, Jonah. Throw me in and the storm will die down because this is all because of me. Peace. The wind gone, the waves lessening, going down, calm seas. How is it possible through the sacrifice of one man? Friend, this morning, where do you find your peace? What's the answer to the storm that you're in? Where is your salvation found? Where is saving found? It's found for us in a way that is similar but infinitely greater than it is for the crew on the ship. Our salvation comes through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ. Jonah on the ship, the rebellious prophet of God, running from God, trying to escape God, still getting to that place saying, throw me in and the storm will die down and the sailors are saved. Jesus Christ for us, the perfect son of God. Not rebellious to his father in heaven in any way, shape, or form. Doing everything his father called him to do. Going everywhere his father called him to go. Perfectly innocent. Yet still, what does he do on the cross? He goes there in our place. Lays his life down for us. You can almost hear those words in Jonah, can't you? I will lay down my life so that you can be saved. Very thing that Jesus says himself. Good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus goes to the cross in our place. Jonah, then, as we continue on in the story, we know about this fish. We talked about it a little bit in week one. Swallows him up for three days. Jesus going to the cross, dying on the cross in our place as an innocent man being buried three days in the grave before being raised back to life. This same Jesus who says in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to talk about bold truth claims this morning? There's one for you. And it's from Jesus Christ himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one obtains salvation is how we can understand that, except through me. In the Gospels, scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. Show us that you are who you say that you actually are. And Jesus, this is what he says, this is in Matthew 12. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was the prophet that Jesus identified with the most. Because Jonah's story is a picture of Christ. Where are you trying to find your saving this morning? 
Where do you believe salvation comes from? It comes through the sacrifice of one man. It doesn't come trying to live any way you want, believing that all paths lead to God. It doesn't come from trying to keep all of the rules, because you won't do it. Salvation comes through the sacrifice of one man, and his name is Jesus Christ. And salvation is available for you here this morning. Do you know him? Are you a son of God? Are you a daughter of God? Or are you a son or a daughter of God who, like Jonah, has, for whatever reason, decided, God, I know better than you? Receive his grace this morning. Know that he's a loving father, eager to welcome you in, to embrace you.